All right, Acts three, eleven through twenty-six. Paige was expressing skepticism at my ability to tackle fifteen verses. A skepticism I've shared all week myself. Um, but like I told him, if we, if we don't want, if we want to study anything else within the next decade, I got to keep the pace up a little bit. So uh, we'll we'll hit the tops of the waves here on this one this morning. But Acts three eleven through twenty six. Let's pray. Father, you've given us many rich and abundant blessings, and yet we know it doesn't profit a man to gain the whole world and lose his soul. So we count all that we are and all that we have as lost because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ. And that knowledge proceeds from your word. So may we delight to search it more than a miner who knows that a vein contains much gold, because we know for certain in searching the scriptures we will find Christ, our Savior, our treasure, our King, our brother, our master. Give us grace both to hear and to listen. In Christ's name, amen. Let's stand for the reading of the word. Acts three eleven through 26. Again, in the context of the healing of the lame man. So while he, that is the lame man, clung to Peter and John, all the people, utterly astounded, ran together to them in the portico called Solomon's. And when Peter saw it, he addressed the people, Men of Israel, why do you wonder at this, or why do you stare at us, as though by your own power or piety we have made him walk? The God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob, the God of our fathers, glorified his servant Jesus, whom you delivered over and denied in the presence of Pilate, when he had decided to release him. But you denied the Holy and Righteous One, and asked for a murderer to be granted to you. And you killed the author of life, whom God raised from the dead. To this we are witness. And his name, by faith in his name, has made this man strong, whom you see and know. And the faith that is through Jesus has given the man this perfect health in the presence of you all. And now, brothers, I know that you acted in ignorance, as did also your rulers. But what God foretold by the mouth of all the prophets, that this Christ would suffer, he thus fulfilled. Repent, therefore, and turn back, that your sins may be blotted out, that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord, and that he may send the Christ appointed for you, Jesus, whom heaven must receive until the time for restoring all the things about which God spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets long ago. Moses said, The Lord will raise up for you a prophet like me from your brothers. You shall listen to him in whatever he tells you. And it shall be that every soul who does not listen to that prophet shall be destroyed from the people. And all the prophets who have spoken from Samuel and those who came after him also proclaimed these days. You are the sons of the prophets and of the covenant that God made with your fathers, saying to Abraham, And in your offspring shall all the families of the earth be blessed. 
God, having raised up his servant, sent him to you first to bless you by turning every one of you from your wickedness. Amen. This is God's word. Please be seated. Uh, Ignorance is not an excuse, especially when sufficient revelation has been given. It is one of our favorite excuses, though. I didn't know. A hunter breaks game laws. I didn't know. What's the game warden going to say? There's a book about that. If you want to go hunting, you should read that book. Right? Or... Or Stuart, a student says, I didn't know. And you say, it was in the course material. Or child, I didn't know. If I've told you once, I've told you a thousand times. Ignorance is not a sound excuse when there has been sufficient revelation given. So Peter takes advantage of the opportunity created by the miracle of the healing of the lame man uh, being healed to illumined the the darkened corners of these people's hearts. In addition to the miracle they just witnessed, which is revelation in itself, he also points them back to their own scriptures in the Old Testament to show them Christ in the scriptures. They have sufficient revelation to believe that Jesus is their Christ and to repent of their sins and turn to him. So the goal is that as we examine the scripture here with the help of the Holy Spirit, God would shine a light into our own hearts, to our own understanding, so that we would know for certain that Jesus is the Messiah and that we would ourselves repent and turn toward him and become faithful witnesses ourselves, shining the light into the dark corners of our own world. So in verse 11, what we have is um, Peter taking advantage of an apologetic opportunity. Verse 11, while he clung to Peter and John, all the people utterly astounded ran together to them in the portico called Solomon's. And when Peter saw it, he addressed the people. So Peter really exemplifies his own exhortation in 1 Peter where he says, but in your hearts, honor Christ as Lord, as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. Um, so he, as Christ witnesses, he, he has Christ sanctified in his heart. And because of that, he desires to take opportunity to make a defense, to, to prove Christ, to prove that he is the Messiah to these people. He takes advantage of an ap- apologetic opportunity. We saw a few weeks ago, I mentioned that miracles are something specific. They serve a specific function. Um, There are no miracles for miracles' sake, but instead they serve to be signs and wonders, to cause us to see something and to, to marvel at something. In this case, Jesus, through his servants, Peter and John, heals this well known, well placed, probably famous, beggar, lame man at the temple. And he does it so that Peter can speak to the Jews. 
You remember the framework of, of Acts is, is seen in the Great Commission. You will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in Judea, Samaria, to the ends of the earth. So here they are still in Ju- Jerusalem preaching about Christ, being Christ's witnesses. This is the beginning of the advancement of the kingdom spreading out. So Peter's sermons both here and at Pentecost are really indigenous missionary efforts. He lays hold here of the apologetic opportunity. And let's not forget that the same Christ continues to reign today. He's he's still giving people a variety of apologetic opportunities. And we're called, like Peter, to bear witness. So let's, let's pray for boldness and for enthusiasm to be witnesses of Christ in our own uh, indigenous missionary endeavors. Peter begins where most any gospel presentation should begin, that is with the problem. If there's no good news, what's the point of the bad news? If there's no bad news, what's the point of the good news? So he begins by really powerfully explaining that they are at odds with their own covenant God. In verse 12, the second half of verse 12, Men of Israel, why do you wonder at this, or why do you stare at us as though by your own, our own power or piety we have made him walk? The God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob, the God of our fathers, glorified his servant Jesus, whom you delivered over and denied in the presence of Pilate when he had decided to release him. But you denied the Holy and Righteous One and asked for a murderer to be granted to you, and you killed the author of life whom God raised from the dead. So Luke reports that this miracle was so astonishing. People recognize this man, the beggar at the gate, and they see he's standing and leaping, and they, they sprint to them. They run. They they're congregate, and they are shocked. Peter's response is sort of funny and ironic. Like, who wouldn't gawk at this? But he says, why are you staring at us? I mean, of course they would stare. Peter does not want to be the object of their attention, though. One of the reasons we fail to pick up opportunities Jesus gives us to bear witness to his name is that we are very often interested in our own comfort or our own glory. And, and rather than deflecting the glory to Christ, we'd rather absorb the glory. So he here deflects the glory. He wants them to see that it was Jesus. Jesus healed this man. It was nothing in them or in their piety that made this man well. It was Jesus, which is problematic for these people. There's this kind of back and forth in the text uh, where we see what God has done with Jesus and what the Jews did with Jesus. And there's a stark contrast. The God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob, the God of our fathers glorified his servant Jesus. That's what God has done with Jesus. Specifically here to the Jews, your God, the God of the patriarchs, your fathers. He glorified Jesus. He exalted Jesus so that Jesus healed this man. He has the power and authority now as the exalted Messiah to heal this man. 
there's this undercurrent of plain allusions to Isaiah in this sermon, running through really the whole of Acts chapter 3. In chapter 35, we saw last time, um, speaking of the day of salvation, that Isaiah says that then the lame man shall leap like a deer. We see that reality coming to pass through this lame man, that because the Messiah has come, the season of the lame man leaping has arrived. Now in this message here, Peter says, likewise, the servant songs of Isaiah are fulfilled in Christ. Isaiah 52:13. Behold, my servant shall act wisely. He shall be high and lifted up and shall be exalted. That's what happened to the servant. This is the language that he uses, that God has exalted his servant, Jesus. That's what God has done. But in contrast, what these men have done with Jesus, as Peter says, you delivered him over and denied him in the presence of Pilate. You decided to release him. You, you let Barabbas go instead of him. He says, you have killed the author of life. I mean, if there... If there's bad news, this is it. This is about the worst news that you can get. They are at odds with their God and with his chosen Messiah. Notice Peter throws in these titles, kind of adding to the force of the divinity and the messiahship of Jesus when he calls him the holy and righteous one and the author of life. So one does not simply apologize and go his merry way for murdering the author of life. These people are in bad shape, and particularly because the man they murdered is no longer dead, but God raised him from the dead, and he's now exalted and ruling and will judge them for their sins. Like, that's not what you want from a man you've murdered. Okay. Peter tells these people that these they are there this day to represent this same Jesus, and they're witness, his witnesses in the world. So they are witnesses to the murder of Jesus, to his resurrection, to his exaltation. But they're also, they're, they're not healers. They're not there to be magicians or, or men of esteemed piety, but simply men called and enabled by the exalted Christ to testify about him. So he, he deflects the glory. He redirects it to its proper object. He says, and his name, by faith in his name, has made this man strong, whom you see and know. And the faith that is through Jesus has given the man this perfect health in the presence of you all. So if you remember back to the miracle itself, when Peter spoke to the man, he said, in the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, rise up and walk. In the name of Jesus Christ. Here he's talking about the name again. The name of God in the Bible is many things. It's his fame. It's, it's a covenant expression of his relationship to his people. Uh, it speaks to us about his eminence and his transcendence. It's a word of salvation and of anointing. And here in Acts, when the apostles speak of the name of Jesus, they're talking about his authority. His authority is exalted Messiah and sovereign king on the throne and the person from whom they come, the person to whom they bear witness. As if the last year hasn't been weird enough, the the topic of aliens and alien contact has has arisen in the news. Uh, 
I'd rather not comment. <laughs> but the stories provide a helpful, if not a little crude illustration. But suppose an alien species did travel from a far off planet. They might say something like, we came in the name of Zakbar II, to borrow from Calvin and Hobbes. For them to invoke the name of Zakbar is to say that they are speaking with his authority. They're coming as his emissaries. They're here on his behalf. So when we're talking about the name, that's what we're talking about here. That's why Peter invokes the name of Jesus. It's not him or John or the man. It's by the name and the authority of the exalted Christ that this man was healed, and specifically by faith in the name of Jesus. In this case, I believe it's specifically the kind of faith that recognizes and submits to his authority, much like when Jesus healed the servant of the centurion, and the centurion said to him in uh, Luke 7, 7-9, Say the word and let my servant be healed, for I too am a man set under authority with soldiers under me. And I say to one, go, and he goes, and to another, come, and he comes. And to my servant, do this, and he does it. When Jesus heard these things, he marveled at him, and turning to the crowd that followed him, said, I tell you, not even in Israel have I found such faith. You see, there's a centurion understands the authority of Jesus, and Jesus calls that faith. Again, these men, these men that Peter is speaking to, are in a scary position. They were ignorant. <laughs> they didn't know that Jesus was the Christ, or that he would be exalted, or be the judge of all mankind. And Peter gives them that much. In verse 17, he says, And now, brothers, I know that you acted in ignorance, as did also your rulers. And what they did not know, God did know, he says. He did in full knowledge. It was according to his plan and foreknowledge that these ignorant men would crucify their own Lord. He says in 18, But what God foretold by the mouth of all the prophets that his Christ would suffer, he thus fulfilled. Again, here a probable allusion to Isaiah, Isaiah 53. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds, we are healed. So again, the prophets foretold the sufferings of the Christ. And and God accomplished that through the ignorance of these men. Peter here is faithfully executing his commission. He's shining a light into the darkness, broadcasting truth to the ignorant, bringing knowledge to the ignorant. Now, there's no guarantee that these men will accept the truth that Peter proclaims. His job is not to make them see. 2 Corinthians 4.4 says that the God of this world blinds the hearts of unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ. So, blind people cannot see light. It's our job to shine the light. It's God's job to make them see. Now, despite their grave offenses, which are grave indeed, Peter is able to offer them hope. Uh, he, he doesn't come to them in the, the authority of the name of Jesus as 
a lawyer or a policeman or, or a judge or a warden or an executioner. He comes to them as a preacher, a herald of good news. Which is good news for us also, because however we've screwed up our lives, we can't be in as hopeless a position as these folks who murdered the author of life. Even they are not too far gone. Even they receive the free offer of repentance and grace if they will turn from their wickedness and come to Jesus. He says in 19, return, therefore, and turn back. The... the, the command to repent often feels harsh, but it's actually a grace. The, the fact that he's offering them the opportunity to turn back from the, where they were headed. So the promise that Peter presents is far beyond simple exoneration, but it also includes incalculable riches of grace for these people who, who murdered Jesus. So there are now three that's, three reasons why they should repent and turn back. So the first that we see in verse 19, repent and turn back that your soul, sins may be blotted out. So in Christ, our sins may be blotted out if we turn and repent. He, he cancels the record of debt. He, he quite literally erases it. I heard Brian Borgman preaching on this, and he said that they were able to actually wash the ink from papyrus to, to rewrite the script. That's the image here. It's, it's Jesus shakes the Etch-A-Sketch. It's blotted out. It's gone. These men could turn and have their sins blotted out, and so can we. No sin is written with too dark of ink that it cannot be washed away by Jesus. The second that is uh, repent and turn back that times of refreshing may come. That times of refreshing may come. Uh, Daryl Bach says that the word refreshing here refers in the original to cooling or to relieve trouble or drying out a wound. (laughs) There's a lot of different meanings here. But refresh... uh, The same word is used in Exodus for relief from the plague of frogs in the Septuagint. And again, of Sabbath rest. And also um, the soothing of Saul by David's music is refreshing. Ultimately, uh, Bach says it refers to to entry into a new and unending eschatological life before the Lord. So by the the bringing in of the people of God through repentance and faith, Jesus is bringing the times of refreshing to the earth. Um, Perhaps the closest New Testament parallel is that of rest, again, Sabbath rest, uh, which in Hebrews 4.3 we are told, we who have believed enter that rest. So by coming to Jesus, by repenting and turning to Jesus, we enter the rest. We enter the season of refreshing. The third that, repent and turn back, that essentially Christ may come. Verse 20, uh, the latter half of verse 20, and that he may send the 
Christ appointed for you Jesus, whom heaven must receive until the time for restoring all the things about which God spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets long ago. Uh, so uh, there's an unhelpful idea in broader Christianity that the return of Jesus is dependent upon our evangelistic success. Not entirely untrue, but misapplied. Uh, Jesus would come back if, if, if finally we would reach the whole world with the gospel. He's just waiting in heaven for us to do our job. Right? That's kind of the, the idea. Um, what is true is that he will not return until every last one of his elect is brought into the kingdom. So with every soul brought in, we could think of it as, as one soul closer to the return. And as Christ's witnesses, we do have a role to play in that process because it's through our preaching of the gospel along with the Holy Spirit that, that pe- by, people are brought into the kingdom. However, there is a day fixed and the Lord knows that day and He will come. And it's likely some, perhaps many of His elect aren't even born yet. So we can neither manipulate God nor can we waylay His plans by our evangelistic fervor or apathy. He will accomplish His purposes, but praise the Lord, we get to be a part of those purposes. We, we should be delighted that He's seen fit to use us for His glory, knowing that Every soul that repents is another soul closer to Jesus claiming final victory. Now, the sufficiency of the revelation about Jesus reaches well back into the scriptures. So we've seen the miracle and he, he addresses the scriptures. And the men who murdered Jesus shouldn't have murdered him if they had only had eyes to understand the scriptures, to see and to hear. As Jesus told Nicodemus, are you a teacher of Israel and you do not understand these things? Like this, these things are in there if they had had eyes to see. And just as he did with Joel 2, the Joel 2 prophecy at Pentecost, here in this sermon, Peter uses a this-is-that argument. This which you are now seeing is that which was prophesied. This is that. So the first this-is-that is the prophecy of Moses, uh, verse 22. Moses said, The Lord will raise up for you a prophet like me from your brothers. You shall listen to him in whatever he tells you, and it shall be that every soul who does not listen to that prophet shall be destroyed from the people. The quotation from Deuteronomy 18. uh, Peter himself was at the transfiguration when Jesus heard the voice of the Father say, This is my son, my chosen one. Listen to him. (laughs) Listening to Jesus is important. It's a Sunday school comment for kids, but we need it too, right? (laughs) Listen to Jesus. It's important. Now he echoes the same when he reminds these Jews of their scriptures, proclaiming that this Jesus is he of whom the prophet Moses prophesied. The mark of the people of God is that they listen to this man. This man, Jesus, Jesus of Nazareth, is the man. This which you are seeing is that which has been prophesied. 
Uh, second here, the second sort of this is that argument is he brings up Samuel and all the prophets. Verse 24, and all the prophets who have spoken from Samuel and those who came after him also proclaimed these days. Uh, this accords with what Jesus said on the road to Emmaus to the disciples who were befuddled about the fact that this great prophet died and then they'd heard reports of his resurrection and in Luke 24 uh, 25 through 27 and he said to them O foolish ones and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory and beginning with Moses and all the prophets he interpreted them to them interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself um, so the prophets were ultimately prophesying about Jesus and about the days of refreshing that he would bring. So the books of Samuel, which preach, really they preach the insufficiency uh, of the kings of men to lead the people of God and contain the covenant promise that one day the son of David would come and take up his seat on the throne of David, the eternal king. Um, and then all the way at the end, Malachi prophesies, prophesies the coming judgment of, of the wicked and the exaltation of the people of God. And, and all of that is about Jesus ultimately. So again, it's this is that. Samuel and all the prophets have been speaking about him. It's all about Jesus of Nazareth. And then finally here, we would be remiss if we didn't look at Isaiah. Because um, he, he doesn't mention Isaiah directly, but his prophecies keep coming up in this sermon in Acts chapter 3. Um, again, verse 13, Peter says, The God of our forefathers glorified his servant Jesus. That That's Isaiah language. It has to be glorified his servant Jesus. And then verse 18, he speaks of the suffering of God's Christ as foretold by the mouth of the prophets. Again, the most plain picture of the suffering of the Christ in the Old Testament is Isaiah 53. And then finally now here in verse 26, he says, God, having raised up his servant, sent him to you first by turning every one of you from your wickedness. So it, this is this this harkens back, I believe, to the second servant song, Isaiah forty nine, five through six, um, which reads, "And now the Lord says, He who formed me from the womb to be His servant to bring Jacob back to Him, and that Israel might be gathered to Him, for I am honored in the eyes of the Lord, and my God has become my strength." He says, it is, is it, it is too light a thing that you should be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob and to bring back the preserved of Israel. I will make you as a light for the nations that my salvation may reach to the end of the earth. So again, here we have in the second servant song the, this idea that the servant will come and bring back Jacob, that he will bring back um, the, the preserved of Israel, the remnant of Israel. It's the same language as ha- having raised up his servant, sent him to you by first turning every one of you from your wickedness. Again, this is that. What's happening now before you is what was prophesied then. So these people, the, the Israelites, are the first and proper recipients of all the promises and prophecies of God. 
and, and of Jesus himself. So verse 25, And you are the sons of the prophets and of the covenant God made with your father, saying to Abraham, And in your offspring shall all the families of the earth be blessed. I think Paul makes the same point in Romans when he says the gospel is first to the Jew and also to the Gentile. In Romans 9, verses 4 and 5, when he says, They are all Israelites, and to them belong the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the worship, and the promises. To them belong the patriarchs, and from their race, according to the flesh, is Christ, who is God over all, blessed forever. To to them belong the patriarchs, the covenants. Despite all they've done to reject and despise the Messiah, Peter says... They have first rights to claim the prophesied blessings of the Christ so that they may join then in spreading the Abrahamic blessing to the nations. Peter's overarching point to the Jews then has been that Jesus Christ of Nazareth is God's prophesied exalted Messiah. Therefore, you should repent, turn, and believe in Him. That's what He's telling the Jews here in the temple. And the proof of the exaltation is this man standing before you who could not stand yesterday. And before I close, I just want to briefly consider then what implications this message has to the Gentile, to the rest of us, to to us in the 21st century. Um... So ours, when I say ours, I mean the Gentiles. Our ignorance is a different kind of ignorance than the Jewish ignorance, at least broadly speaking. Although I think perhaps in in Bible-saturated America, it's much more similar um, to the Jewish experience. But generally, the, the Gentiles are conceived of in Scripture as not having the law and the prophets, the law being written on our hearts, and we are by the revelation of God in creation without excuse. And yet, we're ignorant of the God of Scripture. So Paul says to the Greek philosophers on Mars Hill, Gentile idolaters, that the times of ignorance God has overlooked. Like that, the same promises for them and for us, for the Jews and Gentiles. We are ignorant, but ignorance is not an excuse. And in God's willing to offer us an opportunity to repent. The very first lesson I taught in seminary, which was I think I think I had previously given one five minute spiel at a at church once before that. So it was very early on. I think I was I must have spent forty or fifty hours on that that lesson. I was frazzled man but <laughs> it was a challenge not having any of the tools or anything um, but it was I, it's Acts 17 and it stuck with me like no other passage because of that um, this is Paul's message to the philosophers where he says I was walking through your city and, and you have all these gods and I noticed you have the unknown god as well uh, and then he proceeds to then proclaim to them that unknown god um, so I, when I gave that lesson, I had just gotten out of woodworking school where I'd been doing a lot of guitar building. Uh, and building an acoustic guitar, you have to glue, glue and carve 
braces, strips of wood to the back side of the top of the guitar, like where the sound hole is on the back side of that piece of wood, there's bracing. Um, and so before class, I, I drew three or four guitar shapes up on the board. And then I began by showing these guys a guitar I built. And then I invited them to come up and to try to draw what they think the bracing looks like on the inside of the guitar. Of course, they knew there was bracing. They could see and hear and feel the results of the braces. But of course, without proper training and knowledge, they had to just kind of imagine and invent what those shapes would look like underneath there. Then after they were done, I drew, drew what it actually looks like and explained why it is that way and how it works. Um, the point being, of course, from Acts 17, that we, the nations, see everywhere the evidence of God. In Him we live and move and have our being. He says that perhaps we might grope for Him as blind men. So we can't see the underside of the guitar. We need someone to come and proclaim to us the unknown God, to show us the what's behind all of it. Because by His grace, God has seen fit to overlook the times of ignorance so that even we Gentiles may repent and believe in the name of Jesus and enjoy the seasons of refreshing. So as Christians, uh, we get the wonderful privilege of knowing what's back there, seeing behind, seeing the bracing. We, we have the privilege of knowing, of being known, and making known. So ignorance is replaced with knowledge. In this passage, Peter makes it absolutely plain. Jesus is the prophesied, exalted Christ. We can know that for certain. Therefore, all must repent and turn to him, that our sins may be blotted out, that times of refreshing may come, and that Christ may come again. Amen.